from Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Ed Diener will join us to discuss the science of happiness. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and the world famous question of the week, coming right up, here on the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, happiness, as the Founding Fathers said, is an inalienable right and is a state that many of us try to achieve but often have trouble doing so. Are some people just born happy? Can we improve our overall level of happiness? And can science provide the answers? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Ed Diener. Professor Diener is the John R. Smiley Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of Illinois. He is currently president of the International Positive Psychology Association and founding editor of Perspectives on Psychological Science. Author of numerous scientific publications on the subject, his new book, Happiness, Unlocking the Mysteries of Psychological Wealth, co-authored with Robert Biswas-Diener, explains this issue for a general audience. Professor Diener, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Well, certainly our pleasure, and I think certainly a, a topic everyone's interested in is happiness. How does one actually go about scientifically studying the uh, subject of happiness? Well, you know, I got into this field 25 years ago, and people said, you know, you can't study happiness. How can you measure it? How can you define it? It's such a slippery concept. So one of my major themes to bring this into the realm of science and not just opinion or philosophy was to develop measures, to develop representative samples, to use experimentation, longitudinal, all kinds of methods of science to try to understand it. And here was my thinking. Science has been so powerful in understanding other fields in physics and chemistry and helping us gain a foothold on the world that we ought to be able to use the same kind of methods in psychology to understand important topics like happiness. And what are the measures for happiness? So at the simple level, when we do worldwide studies, we have very simple measures because that's all it possible. When you get a representative sample of the world, say 150,000 people, you have to rely on some very simple questions. How satisfied are you with your life, 1 to 10, where 10 is the ideal life and a 0 is the worst possible life? Yesterday, did you feel these emotions, enjoyment, Did you feel these negative emotions, sadness, anger, depression? How often did you feel them? So we try to measure life satisfaction. We try to measure your satisfaction with different domains of your life, like your marriage or your work. And then we try to measure your emotional life because we find that each one of those different components of happiness or types of happiness provides a bit different view and answers on people. So, for example... Old people might be satisfied with their life even though they're not having a lot of joy in their life. People in Latin America are moderate on satisfaction, but they're very high in positive emotions. So we start to get a more variegated understanding than just the question what causes happiness, but what causes these different kinds of happiness. Then 
we take those same measures and we validate them. And so we say, do they correlate with what their family and friends say? Do they correlate with brain activity or with cortisol and hormones? Do they predict suicide in the future, etc.? And we try to also look at artifacts. You know, people can lie, they can fool themselves, and try to control those kind of different things that can lead our measures astray. So we've spent a lot of time on measurement. I see. So, and so how well do these self-reported measurements correlate? The self-report, I think I'd give them a B minus, a B. They're not A, they're not perfect, they're nothing like physics and chemistry, but they're not terrible either. And, you know, if we take 100 people and we say, how many of those people agree with their family and friends? We're going to find 90, 95 of them. Their family says they're unhappy. They say they're unhappy. Their family says they're happy. They say they're happy. But there are some individuals who are interesting but who say, oh, yeah, I'm really happy, and everybody else says they're miserable. So we're not doing perfectly, but we're doing pretty well. Uh, so really happiness, then, you say, is sort of a multifaceted uh, subject. sort of one That's direction. right. And so... For example, if you look at things like income, people say, well, money make you happy. And people want a yes, no answer, a simple answer. And I say, well, you know, it depends on a couple of things. Will money make you happy? And this is so pertinent, you know, to turbulent times in the economy and so forth. And I say, on average, we find around the world that people who have more money are on average happier. But there's exceptions. There's billionaires. We study the Forbes richest people who are unhappy, uh, a few of them. And similarly, if people get too materialistic and they focus only on money, it can make them unhappy. But at the same time, you have to say which kind of happiness, because it seems like people's emotional life, like their joy, is more affected by perhaps social personality things in their life, and their life satisfaction is a little bit more affected by their incomes. So different kinds of happiness are, give you different answers about whether money will make you happy. So in a sense, money might make you satisfied, but not really joyful. That's right. That's right. And, and obviously, a terrible lack of money can make you not joyful and can make you miserable. But even then, in the slums of Calcutta, we find that some people are happy. And what really decreases some of the things like, you know, how happy you are in an emotional sense are, are things like conflict. So we, we find people in the Middle East, a lot of negative emotions. You know, much has been made that regarding money and happiness. Some say that if you earn, say, up to a reasonable amount to make you so happy, and then you saturate it. Yeah, so some of those conclusions come from some of our work where you'll see a curve and you'll see that it starts to level off. And if you say your household income is forty or 50000 in the in the world, we see that after that, uh, things go up, though. That, uh, people with a 200000 are a little bit happier or satisfied than people with one hundred, but it's a tiny increase. Whereas we do see a very sharp rise coming out of poverty. So if you go from 1000 a year to 40000 a year, you see a very steep rise in the well-being scores coming out of there. So that's what you know, economists have called declining marginal utility. That is, the more dollars you get, each dollar matters less. Well, obviously, if you go from zero to 10000 it's a bigger deal than if you go from 10000 to 110000 So we see that in our data, and we see that with negative emotions, positive emotions, life satisfaction. It's very clear. Uh, you know, in your book, you talk about having a balanced portfolio to happiness. What really are the factors that make up this portfolio? So we really say that, you know, you can over-focus on money because if you do that, you forget about some of these other things like relationships, so important. The happiest people we study 
all have good social relationships, strong social relationships. We talk about a positive spirituality. Now, most of the studies in the U.S. show that religious people are happier, but we say, look, religion may or may not be important to you individually, but you do need spirituality, and by that we mean positive emotions that connect you to something larger than yourself. So emotions like love, awe, compassion, gratitude, empathy, where you're going outside yourself with those emotions and reaching out and connecting to a larger world. And those, we think, are essential to happiness for most people. Then another one that uh, we, of course, we talk about physical health, and uh, health can influence your happiness. But we turn it around and say, does happiness influence health? And I'll tell you the truth, when I got into this, I said, you know, this is a bunch of mystical stuff. As a scientist, I was very skeptical. And I've really become a believer. I don't think the evidence is definitive, but I think the preponderance of evidence suggests that our moods and emotions can influence our health, our immune systems, our cardiovascular systems, for example, maybe even aging. And, you know, the studies out there are very interesting because they can be done with animals as well as people, so they can be more well-controlled studies. And we do think that happiness really can increase your health, and not only that, can increase your longevity. Is, is the converse true? If you're healthier, do you tend to be happier? Yeah, so people will age-adjust. So, you know, I'm probably not as healthy as my son, who's 30 years younger, and yet I'm probably as happy because, you know, I know that at this point in life, when you get to be 60, you're going to have a few more health problems, a little bit of arthritis, for example, or your knees may not be 100%. So we do think that people are going to adjust. An 80-year-old doesn't expect to be able to run at, at the same speed as age 20. But given that, we do find some differences, although where you really see them is with very severe health problems that interfere with your daily activities. So in other words, say you have a health problem and you're still going about your life and it's kind of in the background, but it's something ticking there. We don't find that has much effect, but when it interferes with whether you can go to work, when it interferes with whether you can do things and activities, that's where we start seeing health problems really cutting into happiness. So people who get disabled, 100% disabled, we find that their life satisfaction is definitely lower than other people because they no longer can go to work, they no longer can do the activities of everyday life. So you, you've surveyed uh, people around the world. I, I'm curious, do people in different countries have different criteria for really what makes them happy? Yeah, so this is a um, back to the science and measurement issue. We say, gee, and, and so we've been very concerned with that because, you know, Denmark keeps coming out to be the happiest country. Well, maybe they just have a different standard and they think, geez, if I'm happy at all, then I'm very happy. They just think everybody should be grumpy. And, but we don't find that. We find that there is a little bit of that going on, some adjustment, but that positive emotions, feeling positive are the same around the world. That is, when you feel pleasant, when you feel enjoyment with your family. Now, there are some differences as well, though, that are cultural. For example, in Asia, people prefer, this is East Asia and the Pacific Rim, people prefer calm, contented emotions, kind of the Confucian ideal. In America, they prefer more excited emotions and aroused emotions, you know, the punching the air thing. So when people say, oh, Americans want to be happy, well, we want to be happy of a certain sort that's slightly more aroused. 
And yet we still find that certain things will come through universally. If you have a lot of conflict in your country, if you have dire poverty, if you have corruption, these predict unhappiness everywhere around the world. So there's some cultural specifics, and then there's a little bit of adaptation. We actually find that how rich your neighbor is makes less difference than you'd think. So say you're making... 40000 a year, and you live to some, next to somebody who makes 10000 you live next to somebody who makes a million. Well, when we got into this, we thought that would make a huge difference in how satisfied you are with your money. And it does make some difference, but it's not huge, because there seems to be more of a universal standard. Around the world, people watch television, they want a car, they want household appliances, they kind of want the same things. So these are certainly cultural differences. What about individual differences? Or some people just have a greater propensity for happiness? Yeah, so so certainly there are some inborn differences, and we know that, for example, from twin studies. Uh, identical twins separated at birth and raised and brought back together as adults, and you measure their happiness, they are more similar than fraternal twins who have been raised together. So that right there, that indicates that something is probably going on genetically. We also know that certain specific genes controlling, for example, brain hormones like serotonin are connected to happiness or unhappiness. But we see, too, that these things interact with your environment. So if you have a certain gene and you have a great environment, you may never become depressed. But if you have that gene and you're exposed to a lot of stress in childhood, your likelihood of depression will rise. So now we know that genetics is part of our happiness. It's sort of like a beginning set point for our happiness, but we know your environment matters too. And so both factors come into play. So then does genetics maybe limit the maximum amount of happiness someone could have? Well, we think that everybody's maximum amount of happiness is involved with genetics too. So one thing is genetic individual differences where your genes influence how your propensity to happiness. And unfortunately, probably some people are predisposed at the opposite end to more depression. So we have neurotics who are more exposed to worry and, and sadness, and we have extroverts who are more predisposed to positive emotions like joy. But we also probably as a species have certain kind of offsets. And one of those would be maybe as a species we're predisposed slightly to be mildly happy, positive. Why is that? So that we're approach-oriented. We get up in the morning. We don't just stay in the cave or, you know, we, we want to do things. We go out. We have enough energy to get things done. But at the same time, we probably also have something that means we're not going to be euphoric or ecstatic for long. Something great happens. We return back down. Why is that? We don't want a species that is so positive that they can't react to anything new, right, if something good happens. So we want you to return back to a 7 on a 10-point scale or wherever you are so you can react in a positive way to the next good thing. Also, the positive emotions make you so sociable and so extroverted and approach-oriented. We don't want you to be that way all the time. Sometimes you have to sit there quietly and do a task. So we don't want you to be euphoric 24-7 in an evolutionary sense. So we think that people's preset emotions are going to put them in the six, seven, eight, you know, in that, the majority of people in that range, and then they can move up from there or down from there depending on their environment. 
So in a sense, uh, achieving happiness is maybe the carrot for accomplishing your goals in a way. Well, that's right. It is, it is the carrot in this sense, although we say, you know, it's also part of the stick or part of the prodding because happy people we find are more successful. So it could be that if you have a little bit higher happiness, like an 8, you don't need to be a 10 because you do need to worry a tiny bit probably to get motivated. But if you're an 8, you're going to be more sociable, people like you more, you're going to be more successful. It doesn't mean you have to be. You can be a very successful, intelligent person as, as a 6 on happiness. But that certainly in the business world, your supervisors like you and so forth if you're an 8. So it's not just that it's a reward. It also influences your behavior in the future. I think this is, for science, one of the huge questions is when are positive moods beneficial and when do you not want to be in a positive mood? I think this will be what the scientists will be working on in the next 20 years because we've worked a lot on what causes happiness, but now we're starting to say, but yeah, but what are the outcomes and when do we want it and when don't we want it? Uh, I'm curious, you talk a little bit about positive stress. What, what is that? So we say, look, let, let's be clear that severe stress, prolonged severe stress is bad for you. It may even age you. And if you have a child with a fatal disease, I mean, this is not the kind of stress that's good for you. It's bad and can take a toll on your body and on your mind. But what we're talking about is mild forms of stress, which we call youth stress, that kind of are the forms that can kind of get you moving and get you challenged or motivate you. So let's say all of a sudden you hear about these banks going under and you get a little bit worried and you're like, holy moly, I got a lot of money in that bank. And it motivates you to go transfer your money to a safe bank. Well, that kind of little bit of worry and a little bit of stress is not a bad thing. Similarly, you're going to give a speech. Being, having a tiny amount of arousal is good. We're making more dynamic. How about, you know, I've got a project that's due tomorrow. A little bit of stress gets you working, gets you focused, and so forth. So having a little bit of stress, but what we're talking about is being bad is chronic stress and especially severe chronic stress. What are some general recommendations that people can do to improve their level of happiness? Yeah, and so, you know, we say happiness is a recipe. It's not a, it's not a key. There's no one single key. And it depends a little bit for each person on where they stand on each thing. So, you know, my first recommendation is always, well, strong social relationships. And remember what that means is not only do you receive social support, but some of the evidence says it's just as important or more important to give social support. So strong social relationships, but some people have those and they're still not very happy. So what we want to say is, you know, it's a unique, what do you need? But given that, we've got strong social relationships. We have positive spirituality that we've talked about. We have positive attitudes. You know, for some people, being happy is simply a decision they can make. You know, they've gone along and they've been grumpy and they're miserable and they've learned to complain. They've gotten these negative habits. It's just realizing, you know what, I can be happy if I decide to. And I can get up in the morning and I'm going to have problems some mornings. All of us have problems. But generally, I'm going to be a happy person because if I do that, not only will life be more pleasant, but I'm going to go through life more with more energy and so forth. So being a decision, now once you make that decision, we have a chapter in our book about attitudes that talks about AIM, attention, interpretation, and memory. These three elements of thinking or cognition that influence how happy we are, what you attend to, how you interpret what's coming in, and then what you choose to remember from your past. 
and let's just take memory for an example. I don't know if you've ever talked to old people, but they like to reminisce. Well, some old people tell you about all the things that happened to them when they were six years old, all the bad things that happened in their life. You know, when they were 25, they got divorced, and then their dad, you know, gave them a spanking that was undeserved and all this stuff. And I'm like, when you're 80 years old, why are you focusing on that stuff? Whereas other people savor the past, and what they remember are all the great times from the past. So memory is one of the three elements there and how you think about the world that can affect your happiness. I'm curious, you know, this seems like a newer direction for psychology, this movement towards positive psychology. Is it really sort of replacing this focus on getting rid of the negative? You know, when I got into it, people said, gee, this is crazy. There were a lot of opposition. They said, we can measure depression, but we can't measure happiness. (laughs) And I said, how could that be? What's the difference here, you know, scientifically? But in the last, say, maybe 10 years with positive psychology and other people outside of positive psychology just saying, well, can we study positive things like virtue and and character and how character develops in kids, uh, happiness and so forth? And I think it's catching on. One reason we know that is if you look at the number of studies published over the decades and you look back in 1980, let's say, when I got in the field, 20 to 1 negative states versus positive. And now we looked recently, and it's more like two to one. So psychologists are still studying depression more and negative states more, but the positive states are sort of catching up in terms of the science. So we're very happy about that. And, and, you know, because a lot of people are not depressed, and all of us, you know, might get sad at, at a moment, but we're not depressed long term. And we wonder, you know, how can we live a more rewarding life? Let's say we're a plus five on that 10-point scale. How can we be a plus eight? So it's not like we're all a minus eight and we want to come up to zero and not be depressed. It's like many of us are in the positive zone and we want to become a little bit happier. Well, it is certainly a fascinating issue, but we are running slightly out of time. I'm, I'm curious if maybe you have some final words on the whole subject of happiness. Well, I think by our book, I think that this book is a look at science. There's a lot of happiness books out there. Most of them are self-help books. This book does have some things about helping yourself and has seven scales to measure your own happiness. But I think we also talk about a lot of studies in the book. And some of the studies are very fun to read about and kind of surprising that, that we've been able to bring science. So for people who are interested in science, I really think this is a new look at life. Well, the new book is called Happiness, Unlocking the Mysteries of Psychological Wealth. Uh, Professor Diener, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And you are just listening to Professor Ed Diener discussing the science of happiness. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. In every life we have some trouble. But when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy now. Don't worry. Be happy. Very be happy.
got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. All right, ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Rate Their Happiness. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, uh, what do you think their happiness level is? Professor Diener, are you ready to play the game? You... Okay, so let's start with zero to ten, where zero is the worst possible level of happiness, and ten is perfect happiness. Sounds good. All right. <laughs> All right, here we go. Person number one. Rate her happiness, Oprah Winfrey. Eight. I think Oprah's pretty happy. She has a couple things she worries about. And, of course, I don't know Oprah, but I know that she worries a little bit about several things in her life. But, you know, she feels successful in life. She has close social relationships. She's helping the world, giving money to charity. She's energetic, and she's very positive in her attitude. So I think she's really up there, pretty high at an eight or a nine. In fact, if I were to make a list of the happiest people, well-known people, she'd probably be on that list. Yeah. Uh, number two is the uh, Treasury Secretary, Robert Paulson. I don't know how long-term happy he is, although I'd say right now he's not so happy. Uh, but he might be more aroused than anything. He's probably a little depressed uh, right now in his life, and maybe long-term he'll probably bounce back if our data are correct. But right now I'd say he's got a lot of problems on his hands. All right. Well, we'll hope he bounces back there. Uh, number three is the, the famed uh, workout guru Richard Simmons. Uh, he seems very happy, and I think he probably is up there pretty high. I don't know him that well, but, you know, he's a very extroverted guy, and he's a very positive guy. And so I would say that, uh, you know, he's in the positive zone. All right. Number four is media mogul Donald Trump. Donald also is pretty happy. And one of the things that it goes to show you is there may be people we admire, who are happy, and there may be people who we don't admire who are happy. <laughs> so happiness is not necessarily enough to have a good life. And I'm not saying Donald is somebody we don't admire, but all I'm pointing out is that, you know, you need more than happiness to have a good life, and happiness is an important element, but not the whole thing. Now, with Donald, again, I think he's extroverted, he's energetic, he tends to be pretty optimistic. He obviously has had probably a few more personal or interpersonal problems than some of the others. So I would put him up there still still well above neutral, though. All right. Okay, and finally, number five, it's the outgoing president of the United States, George Bush. And, you know, George is under a lot of pressure right now. But I think in the long run, he's a pretty happy guy. And obviously, he's not been as successful president as many of us would hope. But I think one of the reasons that he actually won the presidency was he exuded an amount of confidence, positivity. Most people who get elected president, even if they're worried about certain problems, talk about the country in optimistic ways. And even if they talk about change, they talk about it in a positive way. And so I do think George Bush is generally also a happy person. I do think that, obviously, he's under pressure right now. So even a happy person, you know, when, when, they, when they've got all these problems and he has not been able to solve some of these problems and he's not been able to convince Congress and so forth, that, you know, his, his moods may be worried and his moods may be negative. But I think in the long run, Bush, George Bush, is a positive person. 
All right. Well, Professor Diener, I do want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around to play our game and, of course, talking about your new book, which, again, is Happiness, Unlocking the Mysteries of Psychological Wealth. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok's, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.